Have you ever witnessed or been the focus of demeaning words told or heard words like disgraceful, disgusting, rotten, shameful, lousy, unforgivable, loathsome, unworthy, useless, ought to be dead, I got a dog like you and I think I'm going to shoot him, evil. When hearing things like that, a person feels undesired, they feel that they need to just go someplace else, they want to hide, they want to defend themselves, they want to shift the blame, they want to blame somebody else, they want to withdraw, they wish they had a time machine to go into the past to change something before the something existed that caused the attack. They want to droop, they want to hide, they want to look down, they want to slump, they want to escape. That summed up in one word is the word shame. When God created the first humans, the first description of them is they were naked and unashamed. And we say shame, shame. We're in a series called Shame Off You. Today is the third Sunday to tackle this subject. We're going to look at John chapter 8, verse 2 through 12. And uh, we're going to see it, first of all, dramatized by the Lumo Project. Here we go. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, and leave your life of sin. Wow. 
when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 8 through verse 12. Jesus has spent the night on the Mount of Olives where there are some caves. And he woke up early in the morning. Maybe it was hard to sleep. I don't know. And he goes into the temple and all the people that are there come to him. Now, this is, I think, the, the last day, the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, where in memory of their journey through the wilderness, uh, they build booths. They still celebrate this in Israel. Build booths and go camping outside their house. Sometimes they sleep on the roof of their house or in their backyard. They still do this in Israel. And here is the Word made flesh tabernacling among men. Here's the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And here on this last day, it's a, it's a festival Sabbath. He is in the temple and people come to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees interrupted him. They brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had sat her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? Here's what the law actually says. Deuteronomy 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So here's the adulteress, where's the adulterer? So they're not really obeying the law to the letter like they like to think they are. It's reviewed again, Deuteronomy is a re review of the laws. 22, 22 says if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. The days when they practiced this were quite brutal. They would stand in manure, in a box of manure, and there they would be stoned until dead. And then they would be buried along with the manure. And at that place where they were stoned is where they were buried, and a tree would be planted, and it would be a witness to the community, be faithful to your spouse. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? So back to our story. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. They thought, this is a perfect trap. We're going to catch him. Now, Rome made it illegal for them to exercise as a culture capital punishment without their approval. That's why when Christ was killed, Rome was involved. Uh, unless it was a crime committed in the temple, then uh, Rome would allow them just to exercise it. And so uh, that's what Paul was accused of doing. And Rome rescued him, though. Uh, accused him of taking Gentiles into a place just for Jews in the temple, and they wanted to kill him. But it wasn't true anyway. So they wanted to accuse him to the Jews. If he says, no, don't obey Moses, then that shows favor towards Rome, right? That's, that would be politically incorrect in their eyes. And the people would stop listening to him. 
Oh, he's pro-Rome. He's, he's a Gentile in disguise. Let's not listen to him anymore. Or if he said, yes, stone her. We must obey the Torah. Then they could turn him into the authorities. He'd be arrested and his influence would cease. Perfect setup, right? But they're dealing with the king of kings and lord of lords, right? He doesn't rush to judgment. In fact, he says, I don't say anything I don't hear the father say, and I don't do anything I don't hear the father, I don't see the father doing. So at this point, maybe he's waiting on the father, we're not sure, but what he's doing is, I believe, is a prophetic act. This they said, testing him, verse 6, that they might have something of which to accuse him, period. But Jesus stooped down. Now keep in mind, he's sitting down, maybe on the steps. He stoops down and writes on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now, According to the law, a person could not be convicted of a capital crime unless there were two or three witnesses. One witness was not enough. At the mouth of two or three witnesses shall he that is to die be put to death. He is not put to death by the mouth of one witness. Why? Well, one guy could have a grudge against you and seek to put you out of commission, right? So this is a righteous law. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 17, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and the hand of all the people last. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So if you were an eyewitness to a capital crime and you gave testimony, you couldn't be by yourself, otherwise a person wouldn't be convicted of something worthy of death. You were the one to throw the first stone. And your, whoever else witnessed it would be the one to throw it first. So someone may not like you and want to do away with you, and they may, want, they may find you know, a teammate in that endeavor to slander you or to falsely accuse you, but it takes a whole other step beyond just you know, bearing false witness to also killing someone. And so you know, it's all well and good to get others to do your dirty work, right? So it keeps people accountable. Think twice before you accuse someone falsely. So Jesus said, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now this is often pulled out of context. When you confront someone in error, they, they may defend themselves, which is what people do. We defend ourselves when we're facing something shameful, right? He that's without sin, throw this first stone. You're not throwing stones. You're just confronting something. Right? These were real rocks. In fact, by the end of this chapter, these rocks get picked up again in an effort to throw them at Jesus. Here they get dropped, but the rocks are still there. So this isn't a metaphor to use to dodge someone's confrontation. This is actual rocks. He who is without sin, throw the first rock. That makes sense? I have a friend I went, I went to confront. Here's what happened. I got a call late at night. It was like close to 11. 
A woman and her daughter were stranded out on 144. We don't live too far from where they were. So I went to help them. Glad to. Love, love the family. And uh, it was a flat tire situation, so we had to get the car to where it could be dealt with because the spare wasn't any good. So the next day we got it fixed. So I took her and her daughter home. And in the entry of their subdivision sits the husband and father in his truck, on his phone. I don't know what he was doing. So I drop them off, and I go back and get in the truck with him and say, dude, help me understand. You're like one of the hardest working men I know. What's going on? Your family was stranded. I helped them. But here you sit. You know what his response was? You're judging me. <laughs> Rather than facing the facts, he he pulled the, you know, thou shalt not judge thing. I wasn't condemning him. I was wanting to understand and confront him. Dude, this ain't right. They were in danger. And here you sit, you know, who knows what he was doing. But that's what people will do. So this verse isn't to be used to dodge confrontation. Just don't attack people when there's errors in your life. Another verse in the New Testament says, judge not when you got the same thing going on in your life. Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. The thing you dish out on others is going to come back on you. So this is a beautiful scripture. I just hate it when people pull it out of context because it tarnishes the meaning. All right. Again, verse 8, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, what did he write? There's all sorts of theories. You know, God wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone twice with his finger. So maybe he, maybe he wrote the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Or maybe he wrote the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. Or this would have got them all, the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. Whatever he wrote, it was a prophetic act. Whether he was just doodling or like on the cover of your bulletin, drew a heart, you know, I love you. Who knows what he was doing? Killing time, waiting on the Father to, to hear, waiting on the perfect timing, the perfect tension to, to come out with his statement, the word of wisdom. It was an amazing word of wisdom. He was without sin, cast the first stone. But I think we can all agree it was a prophetic act, would you not? Another theory is he was writing what God wrote on the wall in the book of Daniel. When Belshazzar was partying with sacred vessels, a hand appears and writes, Mene, Mene, Tekla, Epharsim on the wall, which means you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. In other words, there's a dead monkey on the line somewhere quote Tony Evans. Something ain't right here. Whatever he wrote isn't the point, but I do want to point out the fact it was a prophetic act, and it reminds me of a prophecy in Jeremiah 17, 13. Now, to read this, you've got to understand what happened the day before. He stood in that very temple and declared himself to be the source of living water. He who believes, come unto me. Anyone thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, 
out of his belly or his heart or his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Did they say, hey, we want to believe in you? No, they rejected him. They ignored him. Here they are conspiring to trap him. So now let's look at this prophecy. Jeremiah prophesies, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Pause. In this story, they brought in a woman who was ashamed, was she not? But who left in shame? The shamers left. Tell someone, shame on the shamers. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Now, where would you have, rather have your name written? In the dust or in the book of life? Book of life, right? The dust, the wind can blow it away. It's another, it's a, it's a thing, it's a metaphor for saying we'll be forgotten. So here these accusers are, they're just sure they got the Lord, and here they leave shame. The older ones no doubt knew this scripture. And with him doing it, even reflecting back on it, I thought, oh. This was a prophetic act revealing himself to be the Messiah, I think. Anyway, we can arm wrestle if you want over it. Flip a coin, maybe. He stooped down again and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, probably dropping their rocks at the door, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. I can't imagine them carrying their rocks home. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. So here's the people that were listening to him teach, and here's the woman in the middle of them. And here's Jesus. So when he raised himself up, he stopped writing on the ground. He saw no one but the woman. He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, in that story, he's the only one worthy to throw a stone at her first, but not being an eyewitness and being the only one. See, it wouldn't have been appropriate anyway. So he did not condemn her, and he told her to go and sin no more. See how quoting he used without sin, throw the first stone, and ignoring the rest of the story does injustice to the Scriptures? And some people stop right there. Go and sin no more. Well, how do I not sin anymore? It's found in the next verse. Then Jesus spoke to them again. Who's the them? The people he was teaching that got interrupted, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So how do I sin no more? How do I leave my life of sin? Following the light of the world. If we follow him, we will not walk in darkness. How do I 
stop living a life of adultery. I come to the light of the world and walk in his light, and he redeems me. But first of all, he forgives me of my sin. First of all, he removes the accusation from me. He cleanses us so that we can walk in the light. So what is the sin that keeps us out of the kingdom? It's not the adultery in John 8. It's not the shacking up in John 4. It's not the running out of wine in John 2. Now, that was a cultural thing to be shamed for. It wasn't a biblical thing. It's people not walking in the light, not following Jesus. And what keeps us from following Jesus is not believing in him. So the ultimate sin is unbelief. Unbelief. Tell someone, shame off you. Today's title is How to Have and Keep Freedom from Shame. How to have freedom from shame and how to keep freedom from, from shame. I want freedom from shame and I want to stay free from shame. Here's some things that are involved in that. They're actually revelations of Jesus. We've looked at the failure of man, how that mankind was created without sin and was not ashamed. And then the first man and first woman sinned. They realized they were naked. They hid themselves. They clothed themselves. They defended themselves. They shifted the blame on themselves. They renamed, Adam renamed his wife. All this in an attempt to deal with their failure. And God comes along and issues some descriptions of the consequences of what they're going to do. And innocent animals died to clothe them with skin so they were no longer naked and remedied the situation, which to me was a prophetic act showing that one day the Lamb of God would come and shed his innocent blood to cover our sins and not, not just cover them, but remove them and deliver us permanently from shame. How to have and keep freedom from shame. First key is approach Jesus just as you are without any pretense. Don't do like Adam. The woman you gave me, she tempted me. Don't do like his wife. The devil made me do it. Don't do like the woman at the well and change the subject. Well, you Jews have a doctrinal disagreement with us when the Lord just simply pointed out he had water for her. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband, right? You've had five, and the one you have now is not your husband. She, apparently, she wasn't married in the eyes of God. And rather than saying, you're right, I need help. Uh, you Jews say, you know, I perceive that you're a prophet, and you Jews say you ought to worship in Jerusalem, and we say you ought to worship in the mountain. And the Lord lovingly heard her and gave a little lesson on worship, which is awesome. But then he reveals himself to her as the Messiah. There she is in her shameful circumstance getting a revelation. I mean, the first one in her community, a revelation of the Messiah. She came at a time when no one goes to get water to a place where the community wasn't going to get water because of the shame in her life. And the Lord reveals himself to her as her, as her Messiah. So transforms her, she runs into the village and gets everybody's attention and they come to see Jesus and believe in him too, and he stays there for two days with them. But in this case, she couldn't change a subject. She couldn't place the blame on somebody. She was had. The scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in the adultery, and when they set her in the midst, 
they narked on her. Here she is, caught in adultery in the very act. What could she do? The best way to deal with your shame is line up with the truth. Be honest with God. Stop lying to yourself. Stop blaming other people. I've been hurt. I've been done wrong. I was, you know, put in an uncomfortable circumstance. I this, I that. That is not a way to deal with your shame. It doesn't work because your heart won't buy it. Freedom comes through the truth. Coming to him, confessing our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us all unrighteousness. And sometimes the issue really isn't the sin that we're focused on. It's the root of that sin. Maybe it's just fear or selfishness or unbelief. The Bible calls unbelief evil. To have and keep freedom from shame, we need to be honest with him about ourselves without lying. They say to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. Now, they're lying. They're calling him teacher. They don't respect him as a teacher. They don't believe in him. They believe he's a liar. So here they are trying to set him up, set a trap for him. And what does she do? She doesn't lie, just being silent. Sometimes the best thing to do is, what do they tell you when you're arrested? You have a right to remain silent. If you're not, you may lie incriminate yourself with something that's not true, and then we try to straighten the story out, you're in a mess. To have and keep freedom from shame, we need to come boldly to our throne of grace, to our high priest who does not have any inability. Come to him in our inability, to the one who has no inability. Hebrews 2 says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, to be made like us. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation or full payment for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. A more modern translation renders it as follows. This means that he had to become like his people in every way in order to be their faithful and merciful high priest in his service to God, so that the people's sins would be forgiven. And now he can help those who are tempted because he himself was tempted and suffered. Now, God was already faithful, was he not? Already merciful, right? In fact, the Psalm of David, every other line in that Psalm, it'll, it'll Say one thing, you know, he brought us through the wilderness and his mercy endures forever. He gave us bread for heaven and his mercy endures forever. I mean, just verse after verse after verse talking about God's eternal mercy that is forever. But in order to become more merciful, he becomes one of us. So not just out of his nature of being merciful and not just from his omniscience or superior intelligence knowing our weakness, he became one of us so that by experience, he can become more merciful. Is that not love? So that he could be a better high priest. How can God improve on himself? He can wrap himself in flesh, 
lay aside his deity and live as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit, the Word made flesh, and experience our temptations without sinning, so that he, as our high priest, is moved with our weaknesses. Maybe you have screwed, you have screwed up 12 billion times. What, what's, the, what's our deficit now? 23 trillion, you know, everybody's shook up about, you know, uh, government workers not getting paid. Keep in mind, this is about borrowing money. The IRS couldn't even operate without borrowing money. We got a problem, right? So what if you have 23 trillion sins on your record? The merciful high priest understands. Right? Do not doubt that he was also tempted without sinning, though. For we do not have a high priest, chapter 4 says, verse 15, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. What is a weakness? It's that part of our nature that makes us yield to dumb stuff. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there's proof it's not a sin to be tempted. Some people want to give up and throw in the towel because they're tempted. They got so fired up for Jesus, they thought they would never be tempted again. And then here comes along some sweet thing tempting them. I must not be saved. I thought it was real, I, you know. And they give up and then yield to the temptation because they were tempted. You can't keep birds from flying over your head, can you? but you can certainly keep them from building a nest in your hair. And that's not original with me. So Jesus was tempted like we are. Yeah. He knows the hairs of, you know, God loves us so much, he knows the hairs on our head, right? And with me, that's a changing number. So he, he also was tempted. So when you're tempted and you yield to temptation, run to him, run to him, run to him. He understands. And we have a privilege, a benefit, the ability to enjoy accessing his throne boldly without timidity. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly. Somebody said bold. To the throne of grace. I know there's a great white throne judgment coming and there's a judgment seat of Christ, but there's the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. We all need mercy, right? But don't stop there and find grace to help in time of need. Paul had a thorn in the flesh that he was complaining about, prayed for it numerous times, and he wasn't delivered of it. And one day in prayer, he heard God tell him, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, People have been arguing for centuries. What was a thorn? What was a thorn? That's the way we do. We get distracted from the point. No pun intended. The point of the thorn. The point of that story, why Paul shared it, is God's grace is sufficient to help us with any kind of difficulty. And so maybe I have a weakness in the area of repeated sin is happening. I need mercy, right? but I also need grace where I stop yielding to dumb stuff. And he has the grace that we need. 
But why do we not run to the throne of grace? Well, I did that last month, so I'm no longer worthy because I screwed up again. We do not have a high priest who does not sympathize with our weaknesses. Some of us, some of us need to memorize these verses out of Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 and stay there for a while and turn off the TV about on, on, on how you can get what you want out of God and all that stuff. Camp here. You've got a throne of grace that is yours to run to, to access. Go for it. It's yours. Forgot how many chapters there are in the Bible, how many verses, but the middle... The middle of the Bible, is it Psalm 103.1, bless the Lord, O my soul? The Bible has an even number of verses, so there is not a middle verse. Now, I know there's that, that viral email going around about the middle verse of the Bible, and it's nice, but it's not really true. The Bible doesn't have a middle verse. It has an even number of verses. So the dividing line down the middle of the Bible, if you divide it up, the verse numbers, number of verses, is Psalm 103, verse 1 ends the first half, and Psalm 103, verse 2, ends the second half, right? So Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Isn't that awesome? Boy, that's, if you want to summarize something, that's, that's man, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord, you know, bless his holy name. The second half of the Bible, if you were to you know, start the second half like that, is Psalm 103, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. It's time to read the fine print and stop missing out on your benefits. Remember the parable of the man that had the transatlantic voyage and used to look in the windows of the dining hall, standing out there on the Ludo deck or wherever the dining hall was, Lido deck, and wishing, you know, he had bought the ticket to eat. So he's eating his cheese and crackers, you know, hoping to make them stretch and hoping they don't get stale and moldy. Finally, they make it to, to New York City. He can't wait to get off the boat to get a decent meal. And at the foot of the gangway is a captain shaking everyone's hand. So good to have you, good to have you. When he comes up, the captain says, we haven't met. What table did you sit at in the dining room? Oh, I couldn't afford couldn't afford meals. He says, let me see your ticket. Look here at the fine print. It says, meals provided. Saints, we have access to the throne of God. Well, that's just a parable, and you preachers make up stuff to get the points across. Well, whether that happened or not, I do know, I'm fixing to tell you, it did happen. Pastor Shake Anderson, who remembers him, if you were here, is our worship pastor for eight years. We love him doing well. He was in a band with some younger guys, a secular band with some younger guys who saw themselves as starving artists. And they got a big contract to open for bands like Bonnie Raitt and uh, Bruce Hornsby and some other names, if I said them, even more well-known than them. Um, great. So, But they're showing up at these events, driving all over the country in a scout. Who remembers an international scout? Now, Shake's a big man in this band with three other guys crammed in there. Can you imagine him crammed the international scout driving all over the country? 
pulling a trailer. And uh, he kept telling the guys, guys, we have benefits in our contract. Read the fine print. It says that it comes with a bus and all. Yeah, but they'll take that out of our pay. And we're, we're starving artists. We're suffering. We haven't quite made it to the big time yet. And our manager told us they wouldn't listen to him. He's just, just an old guy. He didn't understand stuff. And uh, so the scout breaks down. So they rent a U-Haul truck with the grandma's closet up over the, over the cab. Remember that? And so they hauled their equipment in it, stopped pulling the trailer, and had the equipment roped down to travel with and kind of made a hallway through it where they made a little living area up front. And it was a bed in Grandma's attic. So one night, they're traveling to the next concert. They have a wreck. Now, Shake's asleep in Grandma's attic and comes falling out of it on top of the guys below him. The wheel or something had come off the, the U-Haul. So they called the manager who called the the concert company, and sent a bus for them. And the rest of the tour, they traveled in luxury. Something that was theirs in the contract, something they couldn't recoup because they didn't spend it. It did increase their profits. But the young guys learned a lesson, and Shake learned what he already knew. Don't you hate learning what you already know? I just hate that. That's where you develop character. Do you want to stand before God and have him say, you know, I had a whole lot more victory for you if you'd have just come to the throne of grace more often. Here's these blessings, <laughs> never to be spent, because you didn't access the throne of grace. Hello. All right, I have, I have digressed. Anyway. Here these two verses are in the New Living Translation, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. The high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. And when do we need it most? When we screwed up the most. Well, I'm not worthy. Who is? Went to a church that used to sing, unworthy, so unworthy. A leper was blind, but now I see. And then finally you get to the chorus. Whew, but he made me worthy. The chorus was awesome, but the verse was just like torturing. We're not worthy. He became one of us so that he would be more merciful, more sympathetic. Judgment day is coming. Sin is a serious thing. But we've got to receive forgiveness so we can get up and walk in the power of his grace, right? Amen. Next point. Find your forgiveness from Jesus without unbelief. Our biggest problem is unbelief. Well, it sounds too good to be true. It's good news. That's the, what the word gospel means. I think sometimes we have done ourselves an injustice by transliterating Greek words into English to give it some religious meaning. It means good news. There's a throne you can access, the throne of grace. Yeshua, this is a Hebrew, uh, Hebrewized rendition in English. Standing up, Yeshua said to her, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. Yeshua said, neither do I condemn you. 
you. Now go and don't sin anymore. So, having received forgiveness, if we want to have freedom from shame and keep it, we go and grow in his merciful grace without condemnation. No one, sir, she said, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now. She was drug in. She was stooped over. She was wanting to be smaller than she was. She walked out forgiven, uncondemned, wanting to leave her life of sin. And finally, how to have and keep freedom from shame. Heed the call to follow Jesus without misperception. Some people think following Jesus is something that it's not. Following Jesus is coming to the throne of grace, coming into his presence, having him shine his light on the situation. They brought that woman to Jesus, and boy, did he turn the lights on. Like the Roach Motel, turn the lights on, and they go scattering. When Jesus spoke again to the people, the next verse, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How do we go and sin no more? We follow Jesus. He's the light of the world. And whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, will not commit adultery, will not live a life of sin, will not continue to rebel will not be making excuses for their errors, but will have the light of life. Come out of the shadows. Used to be a guy, Christian guy back in the 80s, I'm showing my age today a lot, uh, named Jim Moyer, Jim Boyer, and he sang Christian big band. Step into the sunshine, count up. Get out of the shade. This is the one time you've got it made. And you will feel yourself shining way down to your shoes. Step into the sunshine. Shout the great good news. May this be a sermon not just for us to hear and apply to ourselves, but to apply to our shame-ridden world. The world doesn't know how to take shame off you. They will help you come up with reasons to cover it up, or they will make Supreme Court decisions or things to say it's not shameful anymore, defenses, or they will just pile on the shame. You know, if you're arrested in Granbury, there's a website that will take your picture off of the uh, law enforcement website and post it on Facebook. And if you have a T-shirt on that has the name of your church on the front, <laughs> that one will go viral, trying to shame the church. No perfect people allowed. Boy, isn't that right? You know. So if we ever do a T-shirt, let's put the name of the church on the back, okay? <laughs> I think to live a shame-free life is to stop shaming and to cut out the unbelief. Peter will, you know, I'm getting way ahead of myself in the series, but Peter got hit with a load of shame, did he not? No wonder he loved that prophecy in Isaiah 
and quoted it in one of his letters, he that believes shall not be put to shame. (laughs) When the Lord rose from the dead, he sent word to the disciples and Peter. What was he doing? Taking the shame off of them. Who in your life is suffering from shame that you could help remedy the situation? I had a friend on Facebook who smoked something illegal and asked the question, why don't I feel the Holy Spirit grieve when I do this? So I just, you know, wrote up references to, I think, four scriptures about living soberly. And uh, he says, okay, I'll, I'll read those. And one of them said, uh, you know, live soberly and uh, put on the breastplate of righteousness. He said, so do you think I'm going to battle without my breastplate on? I says, no, it's more like taking your helmet off. <laughs> But then I thought, I don't want to shame him. I said, listen, anything we look to for fulfillment is intoxicating other than the almighty God. So for some, it may not be something that's illegal. It may be something that's legal, but you're not drinking. Remember the woman at the well? You're not drinking from him as a source of life. You're drinking from other things. Doesn't that just take the shame off of singling somebody out? You're the only one. You're this, you're that. And and put us all in the light of God's love. We all need to shape up and not ship out, but shape up and shine. We can't do that in our strength. We can only do that with the grace he gives at his throne. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. If anyone's suffering from shame, I pray, Lord, you'd help them to see it. If anyone's just been rebellious and has been defending it with uh, lies or cover-ups or blamings or changing the subject or embracing uh, erroneous beliefs, I pray, Lord, that you would shine the light of the fact they need to run to your throne. I pray, Lord, everyone would access your throne and not see this as a, a promise to claim or something to confess, but actually something to apply to our life every day, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Help us, Lord, to be shame lifters as we point people to you. Help us to walk in the light as you're in the light. As we know, as we do that, we will not walk in any darkness. Thank you, Lord. Lord, as we worship, I pray we draw near to you again and experience the joy of the benefits of the throne of grace. In Jesus' name. Oh, who can love?